Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining me. And on tonight's program, ST Wong from Prime Value looks at the latest stocks he's added to his fund and he's not frightened of the Omicron variant that is challenging stock markets right now. US finance guru Peter Schiff tells us why inflation makes gold the play you have to have, why Bitcoin will prove to be a dud, and why he will whip doomsday merchant Harry Dent in his big debate next Tuesday. And Paul Rickard tells us if Woodside Petroleum is worth investing in right now. Let's kick off with ST1. Joining us now is ST Wong from Prime Value. How are you, ST? I'm good, Pete. Thank you. All right. So, will this Omicron threat change the companies that you'll be buying? Um, at this juncture, no. Other than dealing with the noise that comes with um, uncertainty that with Omicron brings, um, and there is such a great temptation to make big picture predictions. Um, but in my view, all it does is it introduces more mistakes to our investment process. Um, so for now, um, our approach is not to take the uncertainty, which is what we don't know of the future, as a potential permanent impairment uh, scenario. In other words, uh, will I lose my dollar that's invested? Um, that hasn't changed at this point, but clearly watching what's happening um, where the uh, uh, virus is concerned. Okay, so how do you basically select your companies? Explain to my viewers, what's the process that drives a lot of the decisions you make to buy various companies? Sure. Uh, look, we take quite a unique approach to selecting companies. Um, we actually categorize our selection of companies or universe into five categories. Uh, core companies, growth companies, thematic companies, companies which we think are terribly undervalued or uh, companies with, with a select theme. Um, the reason we take this approach, uh, Pete, is that we see real advantages in generally being able to compare and contrast stocks or companies for their underlying characteristics. And that helps us to deliver performance for our investors. So for example, uh, we would categorize Telstra, which as you know, is the incumbent largest telecom provider in Australia and TPG Telecom, um, which was a merger of TPG and Vodafone uh, last year quite differently. Uh, so we see Telstra, for example, as a mature company, uh, but TPG as a potential challenger brand, uh, in, in some ways a value play. And if they gain sufficient market share, uh, that should improve their unit economics quite significantly. So by categorizing companies into different characteristics, that helps us look through the noise and to, I guess, break out a silo of investing through sectors or industries. Mm. Ha have you, um, in your portfolio, a collection of stocks that you might call reopening trades, companies that were beaten up because of the lockdowns, because of the, particularly the Delta strain, 
But mm. you figured, well, they're good value now. The short-term market fund managers have sold them off, but I'm prepared to wait to the middle of 2022 for my return. Are you holding those sorts of companies? Sure. Um, two stocks come to mind with our portfolio, um, IDP Education, which we've held for, for actually for about 18 months now. Um, and we think with economies or travel reopening, um, it should be, be a beneficiary. But really, I think for a company like IDP Education, which is a global provider of ling English language testing services and student placement services, um, look, it is coming out of the pandemic in a stronger position. And what we mean by that is that the competitors, competitors have actually weakened. So we think that as the economies reopen, a company like IDP Education will be getting market share in the next two or three years. Mm. So it's probably one which has did really well coming out of the pandemic, and we think will actually continue to do well. A second stock, Pete, which we are watching very closely, um, it is probably a stock for 2022. So it's not in the portfolio as yet, uh, but we're pretty, pretty much primed to acquire uh, a position into 2022, and that's Ramsey Healthcare. Now, if you look at Ramsey Healthcare share price in the last six months, it's done nothing. So it's been a flat line where share price performance is concerned. And partly that's to do with, you know, government regulations. So much inequality between how uh, elective surgeries are allowed in, you know, New South Wales and Victoria and the rest of the country. So we think as we enter into a more sustainable recovery in 2022, Look, a company like Ramsey should do quite well as a result. It's trading on 24 times, which is not expensive relative to its, uh, to its uh, history. But Pete, the more interesting perspective is that we think that from a portfolio perspective, it has 10 billion worth of hospital properties on its books, and it has a market capitalization of 15 billion. So in other words, even if the stock price fell 30%, we'll be quite bagged by the property in its books, in Ramsey's books, and that attributes zero value to the hospital services that is, is obviously one of the best providers in Australian market um, in that respect. So one which we own, we think will continue to do quite well. Uh, Ramsey is one we've been watching for a number of months now, not quite primed to acquire, primarily because it is still grappling with wage increases. Um, nurses wages are coming up um, getting nurses is a challenge obviously with hygiene and still dealing with the in uh, I guess uh, the situation with the lockdowns and as such so we think as the reopenings become more sustainable uh, Ramsey is potentially one we will be looking to acquire. How, how do you play tech stocks you know um, like for example is there a tech stock that you hold that you think has good potential, but maybe the, the share price uh, has fallen because, well, the, the feeling that interest rates are going to rise and tech stocks generally get punished when interest rates are rising. Is there any company that falls into, into that kind of category, but you still like it because you just think it's, it's going to be a company of the future? Mm, absolutely. So, um... I'm a structural growth investor. I do like what's happening in the tech space. So I watch that quite carefully. Um, what I would say to that is I filter out companies which are on excessive 
multiple valuations. I also filter out tech stocks which are not actually making money at this juncture. Um, so that helps to protect my downside should there be a correction uh, in the next 12 months, 24 months. So irrespective of the fact that we, we like the structural growth theme in tech, um, we are putting in these, I guess, um, uh, positions which will help us to uh, ease through any correction much, much, much better than, than others where the portfolio is concerned. So um, let me bring up three tech names, which I think is quite interesting. Um, REA Group, which we've held for, for years now. I think, you know, I think we all know what REA does. I don't need to go into specific, specifics of it, but I think it's still well positioned into the next two years, irregardless of what the property market does, you know, even if it's cool. So that remains within our portfolio. A tech stock, which is quite unusual, uh, Pete, and again, it's not quite tech where people quite think, think of tech, is a company called ComputerShare. ComputerShare is a registry business, uh, one of the largest globally. So you've bought a share, you need to register your name. Let's say BHP, for example. Uh, in this case, uh, ComputerShare might be a registrar, uh, you know, undertaking those. Uh, but it is also a large tech player in the UK and in the US from a mortgage processing perspective, especially in the US, which it, it just, did big, just did a big acquisition. So it's not traditional tech stock in that sense, but use a lot of technology and digitization mm. to, I guess, make processing and transactions more efficient. So it's not traditional tech stock, but I think it is undervalued in the scheme of things. Um, so that's one where you, you should keep your eye on uh, where the tech space is concerned. Uh, finally, from, from a pure tech perspective, I'm just going to track through uh, my watch list just to kind of remind myself on um, the sort of tech companies that we like or that I'm holding, uh, just to refresh my memory. Um, right, here's one, uh, Pexa. Pexa is a company which got listed not too long ago. Uh, Pexa is obviously into um, uh, transactions of uh, uh, property transactions, so yep. it's leveraged to the property sector. It is obviously utilizing tech uh, in most of its transactions. So we think as it grows into international markets, into UK markets specifically, its addressable market should increase quite significantly. Now it's going to be somewhat slow burn, but it is a highly valued, highly, uh, I guess, a highly, uh, highly profitable tech company, which we think will leverage expertise into the UK market in the years to come. So that's one we think will prosper as we move towards digitization. Yeah, and it doesn't really have any rivals in the space. Like there are sm the small, more labor intensive conveyancing businesses, but th this one is really um, a monopoly in its own right. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. I mean, it's only challenger within Australian market is a company that sits within ASX, so ASX Limited. Um, now it is small. Um, it has struggled to even get onto the board where the competition is concerned. So it is a number of years before the competition even catches up um, to where Pexar is. So long headway vis-a-vis uh, is competition, which we like. All right, mate. There's one last question before we go. Yeah, what's your feeling for 2022? Uh, we don't know what Omicron's going to do. 
I guess, if, if it turns out to be that the South African scientists are right, that's highly transmissible, but probably less threatening, let us assume that's going to be the case. And I might be too optimistic in doing that, but let's just say that is, what will, you, what will your view be for stocks generally in 2022? Um, Pete, my position hasn't changed uh, from since last week. And that's because we already had taken the view on what 2022 may look like. Um, and what Omicron does probably, you know, enhances our view, view to some extent. And it's really, you know, boils down to a couple of points. Uh, one, irregardless what Omicron does, we still think that um, within Australia, we should still see more sustainable reopening into 2022. Um, the more important aspect from where we sit, uh, Pete, is that the indicators of consumer sentiment of consumer spending and business spending, I think hasn't changed. I think won't be derailed because of Omicron, right? So we're starting from a strong position entering into 2022. And that gives me comfort from that perspective. Um, the third aspect is obviously the budget or the election, which is to come in first half 2022. And we expect that to be quite stimulatory uh, from, a, from a fiscal spending perspective. And they'll help, I think, um, you know, from market perspective. What we have done, Pete, is to assume into 2022 that the drivers of the market will change from 2021 and 2020. So 2020, 21 is history. The drivers which, which drove the market then will be quite different to the ones which will drive the market in 2022. So what we mean by that is that we won't be expecting market multiples to expand much further. We will expect earnings drivers to be the primary driver of uh, the market in that sense. Within that, we expect the market to be somewhat choppier, so more volatility, which is why we are advocating uh, buying into quality companies with growth prospects, right? So it's still pretty much if you think, if, if the market takes a big dip, uh, we're positioned with a high cash level at this juncture of cash, my cash position is about 10%. So looking to buy into the market, should it you know, have a correction or if stocks do turn up value on a single uh, stock perspective? So it is this parameter that we frame our thinking in 2022, uh, moving from different drivers. So, you know, value is really 22, it's history, it's 2022. We think that quality will make much more sense where earnings will become much more important driver of stock performance. That's too long. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pete. Peter, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Now, you've got a, uh, another debate with your arch rival, Harry Dent, coming up uh, next Tuesday here in Australia. Um, what, what's the, the big disagreement between you and Harry? Well, you know, Harry is basically stuck in the 1930s because he thinks we're gonna have a repeat of the Great Depression. And Harry doesn't seem to appreciate the big difference between the monetary system that we had then and the one we have now, because back in the 1930s, we were on a gold standard. And so during a gold standard, 
you would have deflation. You have a big boom and then you have a bust and prices come down. But we're on a fiat system now. I mean, there's no more gold as money. I mean, the government just creates paper out of thin air. They couldn't do that in the 1930s, but they can do it now. And so we're not going to see the type of deflation that Harry expects because we're on a fiat system and we're more likely to have hyperinflation than a repeat of the 1930s. And that would actually be worse than the 1930s. Uh, hyperinflation is certainly a worse economic outcome than what we experienced during the Great Depression. Uh, but even if we don't have an extreme uh, like hyperinflation, I think we're still going to have very high inflation. I mean, much higher than what we're experiencing now. And this is the worst inflation since the 1970s. And in fact, if you measure it properly, right, if you measure it the way we measured inflation in the 1970s, I think 2021 is as bad as, if not worse than, any year of the 1970s. That's how bad it already is, at least in the United States. Uh, and I think it's going to get a lot worse. So that's my main disagreement with, with Harry, is the nature of the crisis. He thinks it's deflation. I think it's inflation. But I think that if you measure asset prices, like stocks and real estate, in gold, then you're going to see the type of decline that Harry expects. But if you measure those prices in paper dollars, uh, it's the opposite of what Harry expects. Prices in dollars will go way up, but that doesn't mean that assets are becoming more valuable. It just means that the paper money is becoming less valuable. Peter, do you think monetary policy is better today than it was during the 1930s? No, I mean, I think it's worse. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I mean, in fact, the, the, the monetary policy mistakes that led to the 1930s were made in the 1920s. That's when the Fed was too easy and they created too much money and they kept interest rates too low and they created bubbles in the stock market and the real estate market. They eventually raised rates, but the bubbles got too big and then they popped and we had the crash. But then the mistakes were not really made by the Fed so much as by the Hoover and then the Roosevelt administration in their massive expansion of government. And it was those government programs that really elongated the crisis and, and made the depression great. But for those policies, it would have ended very quickly the way the depression of 1920 ended very quickly. Uh, but unfortunately, we didn't pursue uh, the types of uh, laissez-faire type policies that, that Coolidge uh, you know, allowed. And so we had that protracted, protracted period. But it's unfortunate that government has seized on that example to show that government programs work. They, they look at the New Deal and they say the New Deal got us out of the Depression. We would have been out of the Depression much sooner without the New Deal. The New Deal prolonged the Depression. Because of the New Deal, we didn't get out of the Depression until after the Second World War. You're sounding terribly anti-Keynesian, Peter. Yeah, well, of course. But even Keynes would object to the economic policies we have now. I mean, Keynes wasn't in favor of, you know, uh, a perpetual deficits. Keynes said you run deficits during bad times 
and then you pay them off by running surpluses during good times. Well, we run big deficits during good times and then even bigger deficits during bad times. And even Keynes would say that when you have inflation, you need a contractionary fiscal policy. In the US, we have an inflation problem and the government wants to solve it with expansionary fiscal policies. You have um, President Biden saying the way to solve inflation is to borrow and spend a bunch of money on infrastructure. That's just gonna throw gasoline on the inflation fire. And even Keynes knows that or knew that. Uh, are you thinking that um, you don't want to be in the stock market in 2022, or do you think 2022 is uh, another year where you can take the risk and be in stocks, but get out in 2023? Well, you know, I don't want to be in dollars. You know, I don't want to be in bonds. So I kind of end up in stocks by default, but I don't want to be in the overpriced stocks, the hyped up, you know, meme stocks, momentum stocks. I want to be in traditional value-oriented investments, and I find most of those outside the United States. I look for good dividend-paying companies, good balance sheets, lots of quality assets. I like companies that not only have plant equipment, but natural resources, raw materials, whether it's energy or mining-related. I like to be in the emerging markets. I think there is a lot of potential if you buy the right stocks. There's a lot of pitfalls if you buy the wrong stocks. But I also, of course, I also like gold, uh, silver. I think we're going to re-monetize gold uh, in the aftermath of a dollar crisis. So I think central banks are going to be big buyers of gold. Uh, I think private investors are going to be big buyers. And so I think the monetary premium that is traditionally assigned to gold is going to return in a big way. And so not only will gold go up as a commodity, because all commodities are gonna go up as we debase paper money, but gold will have the added premium of being a, uh, a safe haven store of value in a very inflationary environment. So you see the US dollar going down. Um, what, what kind of time frame do you expect to see the skids put under the, the greenback? Well, I mean, I would expect to see the dollar going down right now. I mean, the fact is it strengthened a bit this year, um, not a lot. And in fact, in the last couple of days, you know, we've had all this turmoil in the global markets uh, over, uh, you know, the new variant for COVID uh, and the dollar's actually gone down. So the safe haven flows have been into the Swiss franc, into the Japanese yen, uh, into the euro. Uh, those are the currencies that seem to enjoy that status, uh, not the dollar. If you're believing that commodities have a, have a good outlook, particularly if you, you're going to be investing, do you think the, the Aussie dollar will go up as a consequence of that? Well, it'll definitely go up against the, the US dollar. Hmm. Um, and I think ultimately it's going to move up uh, against some of the other currencies as well. Um, because I, you know, there are a lot of resources there. And I think once the Chinese economy uh, picks up, and I believe it will, uh, and you get a lot more demand from China for a lot of the raw materials that they buy in Australia, I think that will also be very supportive of the Australian dollar. So Peter, I'm guessing you must be very long Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation ETF, given your attitude to momentum and tech stocks. 
Yeah, no, I have uh, zero exposure to uh, Kathy Wood. And, you know, I think her reputation is going to end up being uh, one of the things that's transitory. Uh, you know, inflation certainly is not, but there are a lot of things transitory. And I think Kathy Wood's reputation is one of them. She is a creature or even a creation of the bubble. And everybody thinks she's a genius because she happens to own the most overvalued, overhyped assets that help define the bubble. Hmm. And when the bubble deflates, her reputation will deflate along with it. So obviously, you're not a big fan of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies generally. No, I'm not a fan at all of Bitcoin or the current crop of cryptocurrencies. I do see potential in blockchain and in cryptocurrencies, but provided those cryptocurrencies are backed by a real asset. And so the most obvious choice, if you want a cryptocurrency that can function as money, meaning it could be a unit of account, a medium of exchange, a store of value, the best way to back up your cryptocurrency is with gold. I mean, gold worked as great backing for paper currency. You know, before we had fiat currency, we had real currency, and that real currency derived its value from gold that backed it up. Well, today we can do the same thing with cryptocurrency. We can back cryptocurrency by gold, and then we can transact in cryptocurrency, and that would solve all the problems that Bitcoin is trying to solve, but it can't because Bitcoin itself has no actual value. And so it can't possibly be a store of value because you can't store what you don't have. And if you can't be a store of value, then you can't succeed as money. Hmm. It seems to me that while the other current cryptocurrencies could fall by the wayside, probably not Ethereum given the, the, the consensus that Ethereum looks like it has more legs than other currencies. Um, but Bitcoin to me looks a bit like artwork. You know, like the, the Impressionists weren't worth anything until a group of people then said, yes, the Impressionist work was worth something. Now, even today, the truck driver in LA probably couldn't give a damn about and give any value to an Impressionist painting unless someone, someone told him it was valuable. And Bitcoin, I, I feel, will have, because there's a group of people out there who believe in it, it will retain a, as a, 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 an asset for speculation and making money over. I, I, I think that's what's going to happen with Bitcoin. But the bottom line to me is that central banks have to get involved in these cryptocurrencies. And when they do, a lot of these currencies will have no value. Well, none of them have any value even now, including Bitcoin. Uh, they have a price, right? Bitcoin has a price yeah. because people are willing to buy it. Yeah. But you can't confuse price with, with value. And the price is a function of the speculative demand for Bitcoin. Now, you assume that speculative demand is always going to be there. I don't. You know, uh, you know, for a while, there was a lot of speculative demand for Beanie Babies, but it went away. You know, I don't think that the speculators are here to stay. I think as long as they're making money, they're around. Mm. But when the music stops playing and Bitcoin crashes, I think the speculators are going to disappear. I mean, I don't see any similarity between a rare impressionist painting, you know, from the 18th century 
uh, and a Bitcoin. I mean, A, there's 21 million Bitcoins. You don't even have close to that many quality impressionist paintings. But also each Bitcoin is divisible into a quadrillion Satoshis or whatever. So there's, since there's no real bit difference between one Satoshi and one Bitcoin, I mean, there's plenty of Satoshis to go around. Everybody who wants to have a Satoshi can have plenty of them, mm. but you can't rip up, you know, a Monet, you know, you, you have to have the whole painting. You can't just hang a fraction of it on your wall. Mm. So there really is scarcity in those impressionist paintings from notable artists. And to the extent that there are very rich people who want to store their wealth, uh, those type of paintings will always have demand. Now, the price can vary dramatically depending on the circumstances of the potential buyers and sellers. So you can have booms and busts in, in art, and you do. Um, but they'll always have some value. I mean, because there's always going to be rich people, and they're going to want to show off their wealth. They're going to want to preserve uh, what they have. And, you know, there's only so much money you're going to put in stocks and real estate. And so there'll be demand for art. But I think demand for Bitcoin or any other currency, including Ethereum, is very ephemeral. These are fads. Uh, these are popular today. You know, nobody will be buying these currencies in 100 years. Um, nobody may be buying them in 10 years, maybe even five. I mean, it's hard to say, but certainly the, the further into the future you go, the less likely it is that Bitcoin will have any value. Yeah, well, Pete, we'll have to have this debate later on, but uh, certainly I do believe there's some very weird people out there who aren't baby boomers, who really do believe in digital currencies and all that sort of stuff. And I don't understand them, but they seem to be big in number well, and they seem to believe it. But let's you know, go. Yeah. At one time, uh, you know, teenagers or 20-somethings were stuffing themselves into phone booths. And, you know, a lot of the people today don't even know what phone booth stuffing was. They don't even know what a phone booth is because they don't have them anymore. But, you know, kids do foolish things. Uh, you know, that's what happens when you're young. You believe a bunch of nonsense. But as you get older, you acquire some wisdom and some experience. Uh, you know, but right now, all the, you know, the 20-somethings look at, you know, baby boomers like me, and they think we just don't get it. Yep. But, you know, I was young once too, so I get it. They've just never been old. When they get to be my age, they'll understand and they're going to have the same problem with their kids because every new generation thinks they reinvented the wheel, thinks that their parents and their grandparents don't know anything, that they're experiencing this for the first time. So this is typical. You know, the fact that a lot of young people are making a foolish mistake, uh, you know, is expected because they, they don't have the experience to draw on. Uh, but, you know, it's a valuable lesson. A lot of people, young people are going to lose a lot of money. And the best time to lose a lot of money is when you're young, because you don't have a lot of money to lose and you have a lifetime to earn it back and a lifetime to benefit from the experience that you gain uh, losing money when you're young. Okay. Now, one last thing. What are you going to say to Harry Dent to prove to him that he's wrong? That's all I want to know. Oh, you know, he just could, should concede that he's wrong uh, based on, you know, what's happening. I mean, he's been talking deflation for as long as I can remember. 
Yet here we have the worst inflation in over 30 years. In fact, if you measured it honestly, it's probably the worst inflation of Harry's lifetime. Obviously, he's wrong. You know, the price of gold is at 1800 And, you know, when I was debating uh, Harry Dent when gold was 800 and he was saying it was going to 200 or 400 And Harry's been saying gold's going to go down for 20 years. And it's just gone up. I mean, yeah, when it went to 1900 it had a pullback to 1000 But Harry didn't say buy that. He said it's going lower. And, of course, you know, we, we rebounded. So, you know, the opposite of what Harry has been predicting has been happening. And at some point, he's got to just concede that the, the great inflation pumpkin isn't going to show up, you know, and he's got to stop waiting for it and come over to my side and, and get into the inflation camp, dump his treasuries and his U.S. dollars and, and get into gold, silver, and, 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 and the type of assets that I've been recommending because he's sitting in U.S. treasuries. Uh, he's making no yield on those treasuries. You know, 10-year treasuries yield, what, 1.3%, 1.4%. Uh, and the dollar is losing purchasing power. I mean, look at inflation, even the, the way the government measures it. He's getting killed in his uh, treasuries, and he's going to get killed even worse in the future than he has been in the past. Okay, so we look forward to the big debate on Tuesday of next week. Uh, good luck, and uh, I suspect you're more in the right camp than Harry. Thanks very much. Sure thing. Joining us now is Paul Rickard of the Switch Report. And Paul has done a bit of an in-depth analysis of Woodside. I'd like to know whether he thinks it's a buy at this point in time, Paul. Thanks, Peter. So what do you say about Woodside, mate? Well, I think it's interesting, Peter, in the sense that it's been one of those companies that's always going to be a big achiever. Uh, and we like Aussie companies to do well. But uh, if you've been a Woodside shareholder, you've endured some pretty tough times. In fact, um, Woodside shares were trading over at over forty dollars in two thousand and one. That's when uh, Treasurer uh, Peter Costello uh, famously knocked back um, Shell's offer to buy all of Woodside. Today they're trading just over twenty one dollars. <laughs> There's no share adjustment in that, so it's been a pretty ordinary result as a Woodside shareholder. Um, look, I guess the big news out of Woodside, Peter. There's really been three things that they've cleared up in the lease in the last few months. The first one is they've got a CEO in place, and that's good news because uh, there was a period there with no CEO and companies don't like operating uh, when there's a period between changing CEOs. Mm -hmm. Secondly, we've got now got the green light for the BHP Woodside merger of their oil and gas interests, and that's a real positive, and the analysts really like that, and I think that's going to be a positive for Woodside shareholders because in some ways... BHP might have been a little bit of a forced seller. It wanted to get out of them pretty quick, pretty much. So uh, I think it's a good deal for Woodside. And then thirdly, we now have the decision around the, the Scarborough gas project. Now that's a project uh, in the off the northwest of WA. It's about uh, 400 kilometres offshore, and that involves uh, you know a huge um, both onshore and offshore drilling of uh, for LNG, uh, and then connecting it back to the sort of the Pluto terminal. Uh, on onshore, twelve US billion dollars going to take about six years. Two thousand and twenty-six is the first time you'll see gas flowing. 
Uh, so a lot of execution risk, but at least we now have a green light on that project as well. All right, so Paul, um, BHP getting rid of its uh, oil assets, they were doing it, I presume, because of the pressure from ESG considerations. How can Woodside is kind of prepared to weather the storm of the ESG investor? Well, I guess Woodside, first of all, already had an arrangement with BHP. So part of the Scarpa project, Peter, was actually owned by BHP. Okay. But they were already partners, and they'd been partners, as you might recall, in the original Northwest Shelf Project, which is further north than where this is. So, um, so they've been partners in many things, and, and BHP already owned about 27.5% of Scarborough. So there's already, they were joined at the hip in many, many ways. Uh, secondly, I guess the Woodside can't change its business. So it's always gonna be uh, an oil and gas producer. So it's no way it can shake off the ESG shackles. And then I, I suppose, whereas BHP says, well, I can get rid of my coal mining, I can get rid of my metallurgical mining and I can get rid of any oil. So I've just become an iron ore miner, a copper miner, you know, a nickel miner and also got potash and I've got, you know, although, you know, there's probably some ESG concerns, it's not heavily carbonisation. So it's able to. Mm. Um, and then thirdly, well, I guess because it's doing it as a demerger, that is, uh, it's distributing uh, its shares effectively, BHP shareholders will end up with Woodshide shares in, in return. You know, no, they could argue that they're not really being disadvantaged and they get tax and demerger relief. So um, it's probably, you know, a good deal for BHP. I think it's a better deal for Woodside. Um, and um, so if you're, Woods, if you're Paul, so if you're a Woodside shareholder, would you hold and would you expect over the next few years to, to make money on your current uh, share price? Yeah, look, I think I would. I mean, just to give you uh, a synopsis of where the, the, the market's at. So Woodside, we know, closing today, just over 20, around $21. Uh, the analysts have a valuation of about $26.62. That's consensus. So they see quite a lot of upside. Um, most are using a, you know, a much lower forecast oil price than the, than the current spot price. And that's notwithstanding the fact that, obviously, oil prices have come down since... Uh, yeah, the virus sort of reared its head again. So, you know, th that's a positive. I guess the third thing, though, is you're going to have to be patient, Peter, because um, if you look at the performance of Australia's um, energy sector this year, it's the only sector in the red overall. That's despite the oil price being higher today than it was at the start of the year. Okay. And so it does tell you that there's not a lot of interest and, you, and it might take some time before you get a revaluation. I think in the case of Woodside, Scarborough is a, is a transformational project, but again, it's going to take five years before you see the first gas flowing. And there's a lot of execution risk between now and 2026. So I'd describe Woodside as a hold, maybe in a good sell-off, you know, you look to add more, but um, I think you're going to be patient, need to be patient as a shareholder. Okay, well, the dogs are barking, Paul, that Woodside must be a reasonable buy. Thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks, Peter. And that was Paul Rickard of the Switzer Report. Let me remind you, if you want to check out the economic global crisis debate, Harry, the bubble burst dent versus Peter Goldbug Schiff, that's Tuesday, 7th of December, free registration, and you go to www.crisisdebate.com. And then on Wednesday at 9am, 
our small cap conference is on. You can register at the link in the description below. And here we have a lot of really interesting small cap companies. You might not know some of them, but they are companies that might be worth having a real good look at. Historically, we've put these conferences on and many of the small cap companies that are presented have done very, very well after the conference. So I'm not saying all of them will, but they certainly are worth the look. That's 9 a.m., our small cap conference. And as I say, register at the link in the description below. It won't cost you anything as well. As well. So I hope I see you then.